You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Leading us in that, uh, turn your Bibles to Matthew 14. Matthew 14, scripture this morning. I'm sorry, Matthew 15. Should be awful close to Matthew 14 in your Bible. Matthew 15, I'll read verses 1 through 20. This is God's word. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, well, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart's far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and he said to them, Hear and understand, someone goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Let's pray. Father. I pray now that you would give us hearts and minds that are clear and open, eager, thirsty even, to receive your word. I pray we would receive it as true. I pray that we would receive it as good. And I pray that your spirit would use it to work in our hearts and work in our lives to make us more like Jesus, more dependent on him, more thankful for him, more eager to draw close to him, and find the life only he can give. I pray you'd use your word to that end this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. And one of our core commitments here is a, a kind of deep spirituality. Hearts that draw close to Jesus because people flourish when they're close to Jesus. They flourish, that is, they flower, they, they grow into and they mature into everything that God created them to be. 
And we need the church for that. No one does that on their own. No one's spiritual maturity, no one's spiritual flourishing is something they accomplish themselves in their own wisdom and in their own power and by themselves. No, like children, we need a family for that, a healthy spiritual family to grow up into everything that God created us to be. That's why God has given us the church. But there are real obstacles to this, real obstacles to this flourishing. And in this passage here this morning, points us to one of the most significant. Let's go straight to the big problem here. Look at verse 9. We'll go back and pick up the first part of this in a minute, but, but look at verse 9. This is what Jesus says, quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God. He says this, In vain do they worship me. They worship me, God says, in vain. In vain, that, that word is often translated futile. Their worship is an exercise in futility. In other places, it's translated worthless. They worship me, God says, and it goes nowhere. It does nothing. It is utterly futile. Last summer, my wife's brother, Corey, lives down in Florida, came up with his family. And while they were up here during the summer, one of the things he wanted to do is take them a place they'd never been before, the Sleeping Bear Sand Dunes. And probably many of you have been to the Sand Dunes. They're very impressive and a whole lot of fun. And so he's got four little kids. And so his family and our family and um, their sister uh, lives over here, their family, we all went up one day to the Sleeping Bear Sand Dunes. And if you've been there, you've probably seen, as you drive along that road that passes along the top, the sign that says, you know, basically, don't run down the hill unless you're in really great shape, because it's really hard to run back up, and it's going to cost you $7 million to have us come and get you, or something like that, right? So think very hard before you run down this hill. Well, why is it so hard to climb up the hill? I mean, it is a big hill. It's a big climb, but the reason it's so hard is, is because every time you step up, your foot slides you know, 18 inches up and 14 or 15 inches back down, right? And so you go up, and, you, and it's just a slow three, four, five inches at a time, in the hot sun, working your way up a very tall hill. Now, here's the thing. If you're climbing up a sand dune like that, you know, 18 inches up and 14 inches down, and you're going four inches at a time up this 450-foot hill, and you make it to the top, I respect that, right? It's a lot of work, and it's really hard. I appreciate the determination, and I appreciate the grit, and I'll say, well done, that's good work. But suppose instead that it was 18 inches up and 18 inches down every step. 18 inches up, 18 inches down. Utter futility. And if you're working at that, I don't respect that. I say, you're crazy. You're wasting your time. You can't get there that way. That's what their worship is like. Every effort they make leaves them right where they started, or worse. Their worship is futile. It's worthless. It doesn't bring them any closer to God, and it doesn't honor God. And look who Jesus is saying this to. Jesus is not saying this to idol worshipers bowing before a statue or, or some Asherah pole out in a, on a hill somewhere. He's not saying it to people worshiping Caesar in the Roman public religion, burning incense before his image. 
He's not saying it to atheists who refused to worship, although there weren't many atheists in that day. Jesus is saying this to a party of Pharisees and scribes that have traveled to Galilee from Jerusalem. You know, Pharisee is a bad word for us. It wasn't a bad word for them. Those were the high achievers. Those are the religious elite. And they have sent from Jerusalem the heavy hitters. The Pharisee National Committee has heard about Jesus. They're concerned. We're going to send some of our heavy hitters up to Galilee to figure out what's up with Jesus and figure out how we're going to deal with him. They're sending, as far as they're concerned, the best of the best. And when they engage Jesus, Jesus says, when Isaiah talked about vain worship of God, he was talking about you. He was talking about you. Your worship is futile. It's not getting you anywhere with God. And he tells his disciples in verses 13 and 14, you can ignore them. They're not part of God's planting. They're weeds. They're like blind people leading blind people. You can safely ignore them. They're not going to help you at all. Think about it. The undisputed religious elites of his day. And Jesus says, don't follow them. Their religion is basically worthless. Look, I, nobody here this morning self-identifies as a Pharisee. I know it feels like Jesus is talking here to somebody entirely different than us. But there's a message here for us, if we'll listen. Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like your worship, your religious life, was in vain? Like, there's a lot of futility in your relationship with God. 18 inches up, but something awful close to that back down. Like you're spinning your wheels. Like your efforts are a little bit futile. Like you're just not making much progress. It's one step forward and sometimes feels more like two steps back. Have you ever felt like that? I think most of us have. And Jesus' interactions here in Matthew 15 can help us see why. Here's the conflict he faces. Go back to the beginning of the chapter, verse 2. These Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem, they say, why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? Now, the traditions of the elders were these oral teachings. They had the written law, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and all of this. But next to the law, they had these oral teachings that at this point in time weren't even really written down. They would be a century or two after Jesus. They'd be called the Mishnah. But, but here they're not really written down. They're oral teachings. And, and this is what they said. These are things that didn't get written down on the mountain when Moses was there. But you remember the 70 elders of Israel went up with Moses on the mountain? Well, this is stuff he told them. And they've just been passing it down. And so we keep passing it down. And it comes from Moses, but it's not part of the written law. And it was a big deal to them. Here's the way they looked at it. The law says, if you cross this line, you've sinned. You've broken God's law. And so what they would do often is say, okay, let's make a new line back here. If you cross this line, it's a sin. 
And if we put a new line here, we'll never go over that line. And so people would wander over this line all the time. Not over that one, but over this one. And they'd raise a fit. What are you doing? And they'd feel awful good about themselves back over here on this side of the line. And there's a whole body of teaching about all sorts of things, not written in God's law, but written in this oral tradition. And the issue that comes up here is washing hands. It would be hard to overstate how obsessed the Pharisees were with purity and defilement. Now, some of that comes from the law, right? You remember the Old Testament law. There was all sorts of regulations about this, right? Don't touch a person with a disease, particularly a skin disease. Don't touch a dead body. There's always to become unclean because of bodily secretions, your own or other people's. There was foods that shouldn't be eaten because they were unclean. There were people, people that weren't Jews, that were unclean. There was all sorts of rules about purity and defilement and things that had to happen. But rules outside of that rise up around things like washing their hands. This is where it comes from. In Exodus 30... God tells the, the priests that serve in the temple, they say, you know, when you are preparing to serve, you wash your hands and your feet before you handle a sacrifice, before you perform any service. You know, the sacrifices come in and some of that would become food for the priests and they were supposed to wash their hands and their feet. And so the, the logic was, hey, look, they said, um, just for everyday common Israelites, you should wash your hands before you eat. And that way it's kind of like you're treating your food like the temple food. And it makes it more holy. And they were obsessed with these kind of things. Now, there's nothing bad about washing your hands before you eat. They didn't have germ theory, but they might have been onto something there. But there was also nothing from God about it either. But Jesus' disciples eat, and they don't wash their hands beforehand. And they say, whoa, 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 hold on. What's going on? Jesus, 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 they're breaking the traditions of the elders. And they pounce. They think they found some flaw or failure to pin on Jesus. They're always looking for those things. We'll see that as we keep going in the book of Matthew. They're looking for ways to trip him up and to catch him and trap him. They're looking for something to pounce on, and instead what they do is they find themselves going toe-to-toe with Jesus about what God really wants. Look at verse 3. They say at the end of verse 2, or the first part of verse 2, why do the disciples break the traditions of the elders? In verse 3 he says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus is going to drive a wedge between two things that they treat as the same. God's commands, their traditions. They think of them basically as the same thing. And Jesus says, why do you break God's commands for the sake of your traditions? Uh, just look at verses 4 and 5. Look at how those two verses start. Look at them. Look at them right in your, your Bible there. Look at the first three words in each verse. Look at verse 4 says, for God commanded, for God commanded. Look how verse 5 starts, but you say, for God commanded, but you say. How big a gap is that? How big a gap is that for us? The gap between God commands, but we say. Well, these Pharisees and scribes, they treat that as basically the same thing. And Jesus says, no, 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 those are not the same thing. What God commands and what you say. How much space is there between what God commands about worshiping him and what we say about it? How should we weigh those two options? Which of those two things is more important? Here's why the question is difficult for us. We know we should do what God commands. 
We know that's what's more important. When Jesus goes on in just a moment and says, honor your father and mother, nobody disagrees with him. When Jesus says, honor your father and mother, they're, they're not all like, what? They all agree. In fact, there's some evidence that suggests that, that for many Jews, they, in, the, in Jesus' day, they thought that was the most important commandment, honor your father and mother. They don't disagree with that. Especially the parents. But the difficulty comes when the command of God comes into conflict with what we say or think or want. And it always does. It always does. Look how it plays out here with Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes. Verse 4, he says, God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. Here's what happens. The part of the command to honor father and mother is, is certainly in your heart and in your actions. But one of the ways that would play out often in that day and age is, is parents grew older in a, in a context with no social safety net, no retirement accounts. They would need their children to continue to support them. Right? They support their kids and raise them when they're young, but when they get old, often they would need their children to help them. However... There's a practice that rises up in this tradition of the elders. They call it here, you say it's a gift to God. The, the old word, if you have a King James, it says it's korban, a literal translation. It's korban. It's, the korban was a vow you could make. It's a gift. I devote this to God. It could be money. It could be a piece of property. And by devoting it to God, what that essentially means is I devote it to the temple treasury. This is committed to God. And what happens when you did that is that supersedes any other obligations or claims on that money, right? So say, uh, say Steve Slagle owes me 50 bucks, right? And he comes and he says, do you have the $50? And I pull it out and I say, I devote this to God. Steve says, rats, right? Because now Steve can't have it, right? I just devoted it to God. Now, it's not altogether clear how that always worked, right? Because it might be, well, I have this money and it's going to go to God when I die or it's going to go to the temple when I, you know, so I still have it now and maybe I can spend it. And It's not altogether clear how this always played out, but the point was at least sometimes what would happen is people would use that to keep other people from getting it, right? I, I, I owe you money or I owe you this thing, but instead I'll devote it to God and then I don't have to give it to you. Sometimes I imagine it was a well-intentioned thing, but sometimes it appears it was abused. And so you might have a case where parents need help from their kids. You say, well, I can't afford to give you anything because I've devoted my money to God. Of course, I still have it now. I haven't actually given it over yet, but everything I have is dedicated to God. And it actually allows them to bypass God's command to honor and care for the parents. Jesus says, your tradition makes void the word of God. It's like taking a check. You remember those, right? You miswrite a check, and what do you do? You write in big letters, void over it. Right? No good. I made a check out to Steve for 50 bucks. Oh, wait, I devoted it to God. Void, right? And I void it out, and it's no good. And Jesus says, you, you take God's word, you pull out Exodus 20 and you go, void, because you got your tradition. That's what you're going to do. And you elevate your tradition 
over God's word. And you still think somehow that you're honoring him. The thing that you've made up to follow God, these traditions, they're not actually for God. They're, they're really for you. Now, why does Jesus choose this example? If he wants to go after the traditions of the elders, because that's what the Pharisees are pushing on him. The, the, your, fair, your disciples don't wash their hands. They're breaking the tradition of the elders. Jesus could have all sorts of examples he could choose from. Why does he pick honor your father and mother? Why does he pick this issue? Here's what I think. In verses 4 and 5, the command to honor your father and mother, Jesus wants to uphold that command from God. But why does he want them to do that? Why is Jesus championing here, honor your father and your mother? My grandfather, my 95-year-old grandfather, my mother's father, is dying right now in a hospital in Marquette. My grandmother is with him. My mother, my dad, my uncle, and my aunt are there. They've bent the rules significantly to allow them to be in the room with him, for which we're very thankful. Do you know why they're there with him in his last hours? Well, their pastor called and told them that they really ought to go. No. Nobody had to tell them to go. No one pressured him and said, it will look really bad if you don't go visit dad in his last days. Why are they there? They love him. They just love him. They're not there because it's the right thing. They drop everything because where else would you go? What else would you do for someone you love? That's why children should honor their father and their mother. Not because it's the rule, but because they love them. Children ought to love their parents. Right, Aubrey? Yeah. Children ought to love their parents. And so they should honor them and, and care for them. They shouldn't pretend to love and honor their parents. They shouldn't just say they love and honor their parents. They should display that love and honor in real acts of service and love, which, which brings us back to why I think Jesus uses this command as an example. God's saying, this is exactly what my people are doing to me. Look at verse 8. Quoting Isaiah the prophet, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are what? Far from me. Parents aren't looking for lip service from their kids. They're looking for real love. Kids aren't looking for lip service from their parents. They're looking for real love. God isn't looking for lip service from his people. That's what this is, right? I think that's where that phrase comes from. I'd be surprised if it doesn't come lip service from this verse. These people know what to say. They know when to say it. There's no heart for God behind it. That's not what's animating them. When I was in seminary, I worked at the temple, Temple Adath Israel Berith Shalom in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, they had regular services were on Friday night and Saturday morning. You know, their Shabbat services, Friday night, Saturday morning. And on a Friday night, 
maybe 30 or 40 people would come to the Shabbat service. Maybe a few more on Saturday morning, unless there was a bar or bat mitzvah, and then it just depended on how popular and well-connected that family was. Maybe 100 people, 150, 200 would be a big one. So week after, you know, weekend after weekend, for the regular Shabbat services, there is 30, 40, 50 people that come to a service. But then in the fall are the High Holy Days, Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, New Year. And then a little over a week later, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And when the High Holy Days come, we have to take down the wall at the back of the auditorium and bring in chairs because you might have a thousand people there in the middle of the afternoon for the High Holy Days because you have to go to High Holy Day services. You may not go all year, but you go then if you're going to be a good Jew. Now, I don't want to be too critical because we can be like Ted a little bit too. What are the things we have to do? What are the things people expect us to do? What are the things we have to do so we'll keep feeling good about ourselves spiritually? And it's all about, in essence, a kind of lip service. And that lip service is hollow and it's empty and it's futile. It's like showing the bare minimum of honor to your parents because you just don't really love them. It doesn't bring us one inch closer to Jesus. In fact, it's devastating to our spiritual lives because it falsely leads us to believe we're doing okay. How does that happen? Because nobody decides to do that. None of you have as your strategy. None of you sat down with your journal this week and said, I'm thinking of pursuing a spiritual course of paying lip service to God with my, my heart or my mouth and actions, but not my, not my heart. Nobody decides that directly. But it does happen. It does happen. In some cases, like here in Jesus' day, it's the proliferation of rules and laws. Many of you have been in environments. I had some as a child, not at my church, but some other contexts as a child in places where we're just, we're setting up, there's the line, so let's draw another line. No, let's draw another line. And we'll just pile on the rules and we'll pile on the laws and we'll pile on the legalism and we'll know who's doing good because they stay way back here. Probably you've been in environments like that. But it can go the other way, too. It can be a reaction to this, right? That's terrible. That's no good. Let's go play out here, right? Because we're free, and we're under grace. And the worst thing is the people that are making lines. And then those people show up on Sunday morning and pay lip service to God, and then all week they're out playing, playing in the weeds of sin and license and doing whatever they want. That's lip service, too. We know people like that as well. Probably most of us have been like that at some point as well. Here's how lip service happens. We start to believe that what's on the outside of us is more important and more telling than what's on the inside. We start to actually believe that what's on the outside of us, what we say, what we do is more significant, than, more significant than is what is on the inside of us. 
It's not an old temptation. You remember the story of Samuel sent by God to anoint the next king because Saul was being rejected. And he goes to the house of Jesse and he sees Jesse's six older sons, right? They're tall and strong and impressive and this must be it. God says, no. Oh, this must be it. No, this must be it. No. Finally, he says, do you have another son? And they bring in, they bring in young little David from the field, the shepherd boy. What does God say? This is it. He says to Samuel, look, Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at what? The heart. God looks at the heart. The temptation to be more focused on what's on the outside of us than what's on the inside of us must be even more profound today. We live in a world consumed by image. We have a whole, we have social media platforms that, that lend themselves and encourage us to be superficial. That, that encourage us to show off and pose. We see this temptation very clearly in the issue the Pharisees brought up with Jesus. Look at verse 10. He called the people to him and he said, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Skip down to verse 15. Peter said, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you still without understanding? Don't you see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? In other words, you eat food, it passes through you, most of it goes. It doesn't say anything important about you. Nothing. It is not of the essence of who you are. If you had an apple or a pizza this morning, it doesn't say anything significant about who you are as a person before God. But, verse 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. He could go on. These are what defile a person. To eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't make a person unclean. Because it's not what's on the outside that mostly matters. what's on the inside. We will be constantly tempted to evaluate our spirituality and evaluate other people's spirituality by what's on the outside. What we can see, maybe show off. What we can measure, maybe feel a little bit better about ourselves. But Jesus here is pressing us into our real selves, into our real selves. What really matters is what comes bubbling up from our hearts. No surprise there. Proverbs 4, guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life, the very springs of your life. The fountain that is who you are is what comes out of your heart. So if we're going to draw close to Jesus, it will not come by giving him lip service. We might deceive others. We might even deceive ourselves. We can't deceive God. And here's the thing. We can't flourish there. We can't honor him there. We can't grow and change there. We'll only find that kind of growth that kind of change, that kind of joy and significance 
when the real you engages with the real Christ. No pretending, no posturing, no posing. We bring our real selves to Him. We bring our real selves to all of our relationships. And our lives become marked by honesty, openness, repentance, because we're not pretending anymore, joy. Joy because we find Jesus there. As long as we pose, as long as we posture, as long as we pay lip service, we stay at arm's length from Jesus. You can't get there that way. But when the real you engages with the real Christ, we find him. We find Jesus saying, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I will. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus wants to deal with the real you and the real me. We will always be tempted to pay lip service, to feel better about ourselves, to impress other people, to keep it more manageable and more measurable. If I make rules, I know exactly where I stand. And God wants to move us into the, the, deep, the deep waters of our own heart. And there, we'll find him. He's come for that purpose. Right? He's come to change us from the inside out. Not to, these Jewish leaders had spent 1,500 years trying to manage people's external behavior. What did it brought them? Lots of grief, lots of trouble, lots of failure, or as Peter says in Acts 15, burdens neither we nor our fathers could bear. Jesus comes to give life to those who come to him, bring the real, their real selves in repentance and faith. You know, we fear that. We fear that in our relationship with others. We fear that in our relationship with God. We fear to bring the, the real us because we fear rejection. God's not going to like what he sees. You're not going to like what you see if you know the real me. And yet Jesus comes to bear God's rejection on our behalf. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say, all your problems, all your challenges, all your difficulties, all your failures, they're okay, no worries, no big deal. He says they are a big deal because you're a big deal. And then he goes to the cross and bears the punishment for them so that we can come freely, openly, wholeheartedly to him. We need that. We need our relationship with God. We need our relationship with each other. Not lip service. Openness, humility, repentance. And what we find there is grace every time. Father, I pray. I pray that you would help us. We need 
a lot of grace. There's a very good chance that most of us have been paying a lot of lip service to you. And, and even that, that we've been deceived enough to think that that's got us on the right track. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are loving and gracious, that when we come to Jesus openly, honestly, sincerely, wholeheartedly, with all of our sin, with all of our struggle, that he receives us and begins to change us. Lord, I don't, I don't want to play that game anymore. I don't want that for any person here. There's no joy in it. There's no peace in it. There's no hope in it. There's no drawing close to you and flourishing in relationship to you in it. And so, Father, I pray you would do a deep work in our hearts. I pray we'd be honest with ourselves, honest with each other, most importantly, honest with you. I pray that, that this wouldn't lead us to despair. That's what the enemy wants to do. The enemy would want to take the truth about our hearts and the junk we will find there and, and steer us away from you. Tell us that you, you don't want us and that you, you would never receive us and you would we would never flourish close to you. Just keep posing. That's a lie. Don't let us believe it. Let us hear the, the call of your son. Come to me. Come to me. I'll give you rest. Lord, we need our souls to crave this rest. So I pray you'd bring us and bring us together close to Jesus, our real selves, and that you change us and grow us and mature us for your glory and our joy in you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming this morning. It's been good to be here with you. Let me encourage you to keep these things in your mind and on your heart. Send you out with these words from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Well, God bless you. Have a great week.